You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gavon, senior critic at large here at The Post. And today my guest is Jelani Cobb. He's the Dean of Columbia School of Journalism, a historian and a staff writer for The New Yorker. Welcome, Jelani. Thank you. Uh, before we dive into uh, a conversation about uh, what's been happening in Florida and in academics, I wanted to touch on um, for a few moments um, what happened in Memphis and the death of Tyree Nichols um, after uh, the assault by uh, Memphis police officers. You've uh, worked quite a bit on the subject of police reform through Frontline and uh, documentaries there. I'm wondering about your thoughts on if there's a way forward for police departments and you know what that path forward might look like. Yeah, and so I think that the, it's important um, to keep a broad perspective on this issue. I've covered policing for, you know, many years now, actually more than multiple decades at this point. Uh, and, you know, there are some departments that actually reform, there are departments that, that perform better uh, on these measures after, you know, some time. You know, the documentary that we did about the police department in Newark, you know, showed the efforts that they were making and and really some substantial gains that they made in, in following uh, policing that and creating, you know, policing that de-escalated, that, didn't emphasize uh, use of force, that uh, had good relationships with community organizations that also did violence de-escalation, um, and, and trying to really map out uh, a new approach to you know, police and policing and police community relations. You know, in Memphis, you know, it pointed to the fact that there won't be a one-size-fits-all solution to this. Because many of the confounding things about this, uh, you know, related to uh, the fact that, you know, for one, uh, these were black officers. Uh, the Memphis Police Department integrated in 1948 in the aftermath of an incident where a white police officer uh, accused a pregnant black woman of being disrespectful uh, for not referring to her as referring to him as sir. Uh, and violently beat her, beat this pregnant woman uh, in the the common area uh, of her apartment complex in, in full view of all of her neighbors. Uh, and that led to demands that there would be uh, an integrated police force under the belief that Black police officers would be less likely to use that kind of uh, extreme brutality and violence. And you know what we saw with these five officers uh, and you know the past, uh, the beginning of this month actually, flies in the face of that. Uh, you know these officers were also college educated. Uh, it, it's statistically showing that police officers who are college educated are much, le much less likely uh, to be involved in the kinds of uh, indefensible violence that we saw here. Uh, that didn't stop or that didn't resolve the situation or prevent this from happening. Uh, and so this is a very difficult problem, but not an intractable one necessarily. I mean, so many of the things that you point to, I, I think has left so many people confounded. Uh, the, the fact that this isn't it was is an integrated police department, that uh, the police chief is a black woman, 
I mean, there have been conversations about black police officers. Uh, James Baldwin, you know, famously wrote that, sure. you know, Negro policemen are feared more than whites for they have more to prove and fewer ways mm -hmm. to prove it. Uh, rappers mm -hmm. have talked about this. There was a famous yeah. scene in, uh, you know, Boys in the Hood. I mean, how do you process the fact that these were black police officers and they did not seem to have any empathy for Tyree Nichols? I mean, it's a difficult thing to sit with, uh, but the fact of it is that you know, when we look at this, and this may be, uh, you know, something as it is, it, I don't mean to lack the kind of you know, warmth of humanity or kind of recognizing the tragedy of this here by talking about statistical realities. Uh, but the fact of it is that most people in this country who are killed by police are white. Most of them are killed by white police officers. Uh, you know, we have seen in, you know, Philando Castile, who was killed by a Latino police officer uh, in uh, Falcon Heights, Minnesota, and I think that was 2017. Uh, you know, we've seen instances to more than we can count of black people who've been killed by white police officers. Uh, you know, we've seen instances in where black people have been killed by Asian American uh, police officers. The scale of violence that happens in the United States in, in any given year, 1,000 to 1,200 people will die at the hands of police, which is an astounding number. Uh, and for a number that large, it almost means that you will have a kind of demographic lottery. There'll be all kinds of combinations of people who die at the hands of police. What that points to is not necessarily something about having black police or, I mean, statistically, they are less likely to behave in these ways. Um, but the reality is that we simply have a problem with volatile and violent policing overall in this nation, uh, and it affects people of every racial background. I mean, that seems like a perfect sort of lead into this conversation about uh, African AP African American studies and the whole conversation about uh, teaching of history and mm -hmm. issues. Uh, related to systemic racism. I mean, can you just sort of start at the beginning a little bit for us? Um, what was the intent of this AP African American Studies course? Well, I mean, the interesting part of this is that, you know, there is a, a very organic connection here because that course, uh, which had been uh, in, in planning, you know, for many years, uh, mm -hmm. was given renewed strength um, or kind of renewed push uh, for it to be created after the video of George Floyd's death um, became publicly known. And so African-American studies as a discipline uh, looks to examine, uh, you know, history, uh, culture, politics associated um, with race uh, and, you know, the specific community of, you know, the, the diaspora of Black people and the specific implications uh, that the process of racialization has had uh, in the United States and globally. Uh, much of what was acceptable in that syllabus, in that curriculum, were, you know, the kind of, here are the great, uh, you know, contributors to society things, which I don't want to downplay. You know, that that's an important uh, aspect of this. But where they really had problems were the things that analyzed exactly this, this kind of systemic problems that we see. 
uh, the way that a police department can have black police officers and still behave in ways that are fundamentally racist. Uh, and so those questions, which have immediate and contemporary implications, were precisely the things that were targeted by Ron DeSantis and the Florida Board of Education. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it seems to be that the the part that was that was contentious uh, had to do with the here and now and the right. ways in which this generation is interacting with African Americans versus a sort of not to say that settled history, but things that were deemed, you know, uh, having to do with distant generations. Sure. I mean, no one's going to, at this point, very, very few people are going to stand up and uh, defend George Wallace, you know, as he uh, fought to prevent the segregation of the University of Alabama, or stand up to defend Orville Falbus for trying to prevent the integration of uh, Central High School in Little Rock, Little Rock, Arkansas. You know, those things are considered settled, and they're considered the kind of uh, easily categorized evils of the past. And, and People will just kind of, you know, wipe their hands and say, "This is all behind us," uh, and you know, we're in a better place as a society. But the things that right now have implications um, for how we govern, for whether what laws we have, what policies we pass, those things are significant, uh, and it hasn't been lost on many people uh, that you know, Governor Ron DeSantis made a very loaded. Uh, comment in his first election campaign for governor, uh, in which he uh, made a comment that was taken to imply that Andrew Gillum, his opponent, was a monkey. Uh, and so people saw that and took offense to it. Not been lost on people that uh, the Florida legislature uh, has passed what is, in essence, a, a uh, bill that strips away the right, um, a poll tax bill that strips away the right of people who have formerly uh, been incarcerated uh, to regain uh, the ability to vote, something that would disproportionately affect Black voters, by the way. Uh, and so when we're talking about these, these contemporary elements, these contemporary behaviors that echo these things that are supposedly settled evils of the past, all of a sudden they become uh, unconscionable. They become, as I said, you know, something that lacks educational value. Why was it so important for you to sign on to uh, the the letter uh, that was mentioned in the introduction? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, how do how do you connect what happens in you know a classroom? I mean, this is a leading question, clearly. How do you connect what happens in the classroom with um, you know future voting citizens? Um, so I'll say I have not said this pub publicly previously, but I was one of the drafters of the letter. Um, along with Khalil Muhammad, uh, Professor Khalil Muhammad and Professor Matthew Guterro. Uh, and you know what we saw was a discipline uh, that was created for uh, many different reasons you could say, but fundamentally it was created in order to, to improve the life chances of people who came to this country as chattel, as a scholarly discipline that was meant to help vigorously defend the humanity of people who have been categorized as less than human. And that is something that we all take very seriously uh, and that it has to be defended uh, and it has to be, and there's no, of course there's room for scholarly critique, 
uh, there's room for scholarly debate, people can say that this you know, source is better than this source or what goes in and what goes out. Uh, but you simply cannot be mute when someone says that this entire undertaking lacks educational value. Uh, that was just a bridge too far for any of us to tolerate. And when now that the College Board has uh, done some editing, reconfiguring, I mean, there's been a, a belief that it's been watered down. The College Board denies it, that. It has been watered down. That's why. That's why people believe that. <laughs> it has been, yeah. And I mean, the, but one of the issues raised was to include uh, more conservative voices. Um, I mean, sure. how do you feel about that? So when, you know, I'm, I'm the dean of the journalism school now, um, but when I was a African-American studies professor, I made sure that I framed the contemporary and the historical debates uh, around radicalism, around conservatism, uh, around liberalism, around the various kinds of ways that intellectually people have sought to make sense of the enigma of race and racism in the United States and beyond. Uh, and so I have no problem. I don't think most serious scholars of the field have any problem uh, with talking about that uh, subject matter or with that subject matter being included. Um, but the last thing that I'll say, or one thing that I wanted to actually point out is that, you know, we could we could reasonably trace the origins of African-American studies in a lot of different places. I mean, in, you know, more contemporary context in, in the 1960s. But we could say that the origins started with uh, Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who was also the founder of Black History Month. Uh, and he was a man who got a PhD in history from Harvard University, uh, despite the fact that his parents had been slaves, had been actually enslaved. And he earned a PhD in history and decided that he would use all of his intellectual resources fighting against the amalgamated forces of white supremacy that had made it possible for his parents to be enslaved. And in the course of his life, uh, during the, the riots of 1919, the race riots of 1919, uh, Dr. Woodson had to run for his life uh, being pursued by a white mob uh, and narrowly escaped. You know, he could have been a lynching victim. When we have people who went through those kinds of ordeals in order to produce information, because they felt that that information was our best chance at defending our own humanity, that is a really weighty responsibility for subsequent generations. Uh, and I think that was why people have been so adamant uh, in their critique of what has happened with the AP course. That is a perfect lead into a question from the audience uh, from Kristen Trost from Virginia, who wonders, will state and local attempts to ban books, authors, and theories, first of all, withstand First Amendment challenge, but do you think that um, you know alternative infrastructures will step in to educate children and college students? Well, I think some of that's happening now. You know, one of the things that you saw when the book bans uh, first, uh, you know, and, and the other, uh, all the I should say multimedia bans first started happening, and along the uh, you know fear mongering around critical race theory, uh, when that first started, you know, you know things like public libraries, I know the book Brooklyn Public Library uh, said that you no longer had to be a resident of Brooklyn in order to get a membership. Uh, so people would be able to get access to digital resources around the country you know, and to get around uh, the fact that materials were banned. Uh, the filmmaker uh, Ava DuVernay uh, and her distribution company Array 
made their work available uh, in in uh, places where it would have been difficult to access through public libraries. So I think I'm not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. And I've like, actually heard some conversation about people you know, making attempts uh, to put together uh, coursework or content that people will be able to access uh, irrespective of what what Florida does um, with this. Uh, and in terms of the First Amendment challenges, you know, I'll defer to people who are much wiser legal authorities about that. But, you know, for me, it stands, it, it looks to me to be a direct contradiction, a direct contrast uh, from what is prescribed in the First Amendment. I mean, the, the issues that are raised uh, by the AP Studies course um, uh, seems to be part of a larger issue as it relates to critical race theory and the 1619 sure. project. Uh, affirmative action, uh, a, a real sort of uh, conversation that seems to be happening, a battle even, about, um, you know, what history is taught, uh, the way in which we debate and think about history and the present. I mean, where do you see all of this coming from? I mean, is there some broader, broader context out of which this grows? You know, one of the things, one of the reasons why this course is so important, and and one of the other dynamics here is that the course itself has become a kind of meta-examination of the dynamics in African-American history in the first place, that when there are movements forward, they invariably engender backlashes. Uh, you know, Dr. King wrote about this eloquently uh, in his last book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? Uh, and he talked about that the fact that every single movement that has moved that has created uh, a iota of more democracy in the society has been met by a backlash for people who wanted to return to the status quo ante uh, and you know that's what we're seeing here uh, the weird thing about this and to the point that you that I made when you showed the clip earlier is that critical race theory concerns itself with precisely this dynamic uh, and so, of course, I think this is lost on the critics of critical race theory because most of them haven't actually read any of it. Uh, but, you know, it becomes this kind of weird way of saying, what could I do to validate everything that's in the body of literature of critical race theorists? Uh, and then they have set out to do exactly that legislatively and in, in their political rhetoric. When you think about uh, some of the the assaults on um, whether it's critical race theory or affirmative action in particular, I mean, what do you see higher education perhaps looking like without uh, affirmative action or without the ability of uh, academics, teachers to teach freely and without fear? I mean, not to sort of <laughs> ask you to describe anything dystopian, but I mean, how do you see a, a future? Well, I mean, I think we've seen this, like when we saw in the state of California, when, you know, affirmative action and race was stripped away as a consideration, uh, institutions became less diverse. Uh, and, you know, that could very easily be uh, the landscape that we see across American higher education. Uh, and you know, we could also see, certainly in places in the South, or certainly in places that have uh, Republican legislatures, uh, impediments to being able to teach, you know, what the history is, how we came uh, to be in the predicament that we're in. And even, you know, when we look at our horrific circumstances around guns in this country, with the staggering number of gun deaths that we have every year, 
uh, yet legislation that makes it uh, illegal for the federal government to collect data around that. Uh, and so what we have is one of our most profound social problems uh, and very little knowledge about how to actually address it. Uh, we could theoretically see a racial equivalent of that, uh, where we have this entrenched problem of race, this entrenched problem of hierarchy, of social hierarchy, uh, all the dynamics that we've talked about, the redundant abuses of police departments, and no way of explaining what the dynamics at play here actually are. Um, in the time that we have left, I would love for you to put on your hat, your hat as the Dean of the Journalism School at Columbia, um, because I think we know so much about what's happening uh, in Florida because it has sort of burst onto the national stage. But mm -hmm. there is a worry that, you know, there are things happening all over the country that we don't know about because of the lack of resources to local journalism. I mean, how, right. how do you sort of feel about the prospects for local journalism? And are you worried about the stories that we are not um, hearing about? Well, I mean, I think that what we saw uh, with, you know, the George Santos uh, situation, which has been played as a sideshow, and I know that lots of late night comedy shows have gotten fodder from it. And, you know, and George Santos being the new representative from New right, York, who's fabricated most of his resume. He's fabricated most of his resume and literally is not who he says he is. Um, and, you know, this is has been seen as a kind of comedic aside. And, and sure, there's there's some absurdist elements of it. But what it points to is a real crisis in local news and our ability to vet the people who are standing for uh, the most powerful offices in our country. Uh, and so that's really important. That's something that we need to be mindful of. Uh, and that's something that we think about every single day at Columbia Journalism School. Uh, and and for that matter, if I can you know make a plug, you know that's really you know what we think about when you know we have things like the DuPont Awards, which we're having uh, this evening, which recognize the highest achievements uh, in broadcast and digital journalism. And so we really recognize that across the board, you know, in local uh, news, in uh, you know war coverage and conflict reporting and uh, environmental reporting and a whole array of different categories. It's more difficult to get the story out. It's more difficult to get the public to know uh, the information that we're we're finding that is really crucial. And so uh, we think it's really important, even more important than it's ever been, uh, to to take the time and set aside a, a moment to recognize the excellence that still uh, is very abundant in the news media landscape. And I'm also curious to get your thoughts about uh, uh, an essay that was written recently by our former uh, executive editor, Len Downey, who talked about mm -hmm. objectivity and mm -hmm. the role that it plays in journalism and the idea that so much of the way that we have thought about objectivity was really rooted in an objectivity as defined by straight white men sure. and that we should be aspiring more towards simply truth and, and fairness and balance. I mean, do you see that uh, this sort of shifting def definition or understanding of objectivity is sort of part of the whole conversation that uh, we're having about how we understand who we are and our history and our present? Sure. Uh, so 
there are a few things here. One, in terms of, of news objectivity, you know, there's, there's a really serious gap between what the original concept of objectivity was, you know, which was conflated with something called independence or people, you know, as you well know, a century ago, uh, newspapers were openly affiliated with political parties. You know, you have newspapers called the Republican and, you know, newspaper in St. Louis called the Democrat, you know, and, and it was because they actually had ties with those parties. Uh, the movement for independent journalism meant really what we would say is, I guess, disinterested uh, journalism, as in uh, you don't care if the corrupt congressman is a Republican or a Democrat. Your main problem is that there is corruption and that you want the public to know about that. Uh, and that was what people meant by objectivity. Over time, that morphed into this concept that we are dispassionate individuals, we have no biases, we kind of stand on the shoulder of God looking at the affairs of humanity uh, and uh, kind of serve as these, these referees in, in human affairs. Uh, that really couldn't be farther from the truth because we all have biases, uh, we all have upbringings, we all have areas that we are knowledgeable about and areas that we don't know anything about or that we're ignorant of. Uh, and so that conflation, the, that kind of voice of God uh, journalism has really been uh, you know, under assault rightfully uh, for years in talking about the perspectives that have been left out, uh, the fact that it had been a default uh, heterosexual, middle-aged, middle-class white male perspective. Uh, and so I think that revisiting our sense of objectivity uh, as it was originally intended would be beneficial to us in terms of news media. It would also be beneficial to us in terms of our perspective on the country itself uh, as you know, citizens or lay people who are not operating in the news. And that's part of what we saw. I think that connects uh, that question to uh, the issues we're seeing with the AP course, et cetera. Well, on that note, I'm afraid we're gonna have to end it because we're out of time. But I so very much appreciate your taking the time to chat with us today. And um, I know you're looking forward to the DuPont Awards this evening. So congratulations there as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.